You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Saddlebird, continuing the discussion of the liberal arts, their history, and their philosophy. We have considered in our first lecture the relation between learning and the liberal arts and the reason for thinking that the liberal arts are, are preeminently the arts of learning. Then in our second lecture, we looked at the tradition of the liberal arts through antiquity and the Middle Ages in particular and saw how two groups of arts were distinguished. Continuing today, we'll look at the linguistic arts of the trivium. And in fact, this third lecture and the fourth will both be devoted to a discussion of the linguistic arts of the trivium. In the gift of speech that we possess, we have the best known instance of man's use of signs and symbols. It is a common possession, so characteristic that man stands out as preeminently the talking animal. It is so prized, this gift of speech, that ways have been devised of taking it down and preserving it, and libraries of the world are filled with what men have found it possible to express. Here, if anywhere, in language and its use, the liberal arts are to be found as the arts of signs and symbols. Now, in this lecture and the next, we want to consider the linguistic sign with the purpose of showing what arts are necessary for its use. The ancients, as we have seen, claimed that there are three primary arts, the arts of the trivium, of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. I hope to show that there is ground for such a claim, that there are indeed three distinct and different arts for the use of language. However, that is not my main purpose here in this lecture, and my history, use of history will be only by way of illustration, except insofar as traditional distinctions may further the analysis. The validity and usefulness of distinctions is to be judged by what they contribute to understanding the linguistic sign and its use. In recent years, much work has been devoted to the analysis of the sign, especially in the systematic and scientific elaboration of semiotics, as it's called is the science of signs. Here again, I, I should be concerned with these discussions, only incidentally, insofar as they can contribute to the analysis of the sign and its functioning. Although I would hope to make some contribution to the theory of signs, the object of my concern is, as it were, at a pre-scientific level. It is at the beginnings of these disciplines and with what they already presuppose. I would like, if possible, to reach the pre-scientific level of experience, which provides the data that these sciences seek to analyze and the problems they endeavor to solve. What is given, what is presupposed by these sciences of linguistics and semiotics and modern logic, what is given and presupposed by these sciences is open to anyone who wants to look at the fact of signs and their operation. With this word of warning, I can state my major contention here as follows. If we look closely and dispassionately at the operation of a linguistic sign, 
we find that at least three different aspects or elements must be distinguished. No less than three can describe what happens in the operation of a sign. No more than three are needed. Each of these three calls, a different, calls for a different kind of sensitivity, for a different skill for its use. All three meet the conditions of a liberal art, and they correspond in a general way to the traditional distinctions of the trivium. For this reason, I propose to retain the traditional names and call them the liberal arts of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. For the analysis of a sign, it is best for our purpose to begin with a group of words making a statement. Words are not, of course, the only instances of signs, but they are the most familiar and the most readily available. In their written form, they are secondary to speech, and linguists frequently warn of the mistakes that come from taking written rather than spoken language for analysis. The spoken word lasts a little longer than the time it takes to pronounce and can be recorded only by a fairly elaborate device. But what is much more important, it operates fully as a sign only in conjunction with the tone of voice in which the word or phrase is uttered and the gestures or facial expressions that accompany it. All of these must be taken into account in the analysis of a spoken sign. And yet, it is only with the greatest difficulty that they are susceptible of verbal analysis. I refer especially to the gestures that, and the tone of voice that we use in talking. Yet the warning of the, of the linguist can help save us from mistaking what is primary, primarily given in the sign process. From written discourse, we are apt, too apt to take the isolated word as the basic and primary unit and analyze it, that word, as the typical sign. And yet, from observation of the spoken language, it becomes clear that this isolation of the word by itself is an, an analytical device. Words do not stand alone in a spoken discourse. They are part of a context. And where they do occur in isolation, some larger context is understood. We know a language by knowing groups of words, not just isolated words. Even the function of individual words can be determined ultimately only by the way they perform with other words. Thus, a dictionary best shows the sense of a word by providing examples of its use. If words function thus in groups, it would seem to buttress the claim of the modern logician that the logic of sentences is prior to the logic of terms. A group of words as an example of a sign possesses the further advantage of avoiding and postponing the complex question of the different kinds of words. Connectives such as or and if obviously do not function in the same way as names. In taking any one word as a sign, we are thus at once limiting our analysis to but one kind with the resulting danger that our analysis may apply only to that one kind of sign. But with a group of signs, a group of words, provided it's large enough, we may catch all the important kinds. With this as an introduction, let us consider a group of words operating as a sign. To have as much control as possible over the example, we can take as an expression that applies to this lecture. Say the statement that a lecture lasts about 50 minutes. What do we mean when we say that this expression is a sign? 
in the first place, although not always the first thing to be consciously observed, is it is a material or physical thing. In this case, it consists of a number of sounds made by percussions of air. It is also some, something more. In fact, if it were no more than this, no more than a number of sounds as a material thing, we would not call the expression a sign at all. The something more that it provides is something other than itself. The reference by which we are sent to the meaning of the statement that a lecture lasts 50 minutes. This something other almost always appears with a group of words, although in the case of certain isolated words, it be very difficult to see. This other is very difficult to describe without getting caught in the difficulties of philosophy. To call it a reference, a direction, a meaning, is to use terms that have philosophical history in the efforts to explain the signifying process. Yet the fact, however philosophies may endeavor to account for it, is indubitable. The expression as a sign is something in itself, sounding words, if you will, but it also provides something more than itself. It is also evident that the other which is given by the sign is not present in the same way that the sign is present as a thing, as sounding words. Our original example consists of a small number of sounding words, whereas the other that it presents consists of all the words sounding during the 50-minute period. The sign thus provides us with two different kinds of presentations. It occurs as a thing, sounding words, and it presents something else which is not present in the same way. The lecture lasts 50 minutes. Well, we haven't spoken 50 minutes. See, that's something else that's referred to, see, is a whole that doesn't yet exist. We might say that the sign is present to us immediately as a thing, the spoken words that you hear, whereas its other is presented immediately through that. This would suffice for indicating the two different kinds of presences, although it leaves untouched the difficulty of the mediation. Subsuming both under knowledge, since both involve a knowledge of some kind, we could describe the sign as a thing which, in addition to itself, makes something other come to be known. In any case, what we need from such notions as presentation, presence, or knowledge is some way of describing the fact that the sign is a thing which gives us, potentially or actually, something more than itself. In the ordinary use of a sign, the other that it presents is the predominant element. In the operation of a sign, we attend not to what it is in itself, but to the other to which it directs us. This fact led the ancients to draw a sharp distinction between signs and things. Signs as material sounds, as sounding words, direct us to something other, to a certain thing, to the fact that a lecture lasts 50 minutes. Now with this we can begin to distinguish the elements of the sign. In our preliminary search for the most general notion of a linguistic sign, we have been compelled to distinguish two elements or aspects. That aspect under which the sign is considered as a thing enjoying an existence on its own, which I shall call simply the sign thing. Sometimes it is called the sign vehicle, but this already emphasizes the function of carrying us to something else. It's a vehicle, which is more than we want at this point. There's nothing particularly difficult in this aspect of the sign. In written language, it consists of certain marks 
with differing shapes on some kind of writing material. But it may consist of the percussion of air making a certain sound, as in talking, bell ringing, or in any kind of sound instrument used for signaling, or in electrical impulses or wave frequencies of any kind that can be converted into sights or sounds within human range. In a footprint, it consists in certain impression made in the earth, in smoke signals, in the visible mass of gas particles, in flags, in the cloth of certain colors and shapes. The first element that we've distinguished in a sign is the sign thing. The material, individual, sound, in the case of spoken words or a written word, a bell ringing, any kind of signal, a cloud in the sky, see, any of these things, each of them a material thing. For that reason, I'll just call it a sign thing. Now the second element, remember I said there are three elements that have to be distinguished in a sign to understand what a sign is and how it functions. Now the second element is considerably more difficult to grasp. There is certainly more in the sign than just the sign thing. But once begin, we begin to look closely at the sign, there's something more seems to consist of many things. The expression that a lecture lasts 50 minutes presents us with something other than itself, something other than a thing that exists in its own right, since this lecture lasting 50 minutes hasn't yet <laughs> lasted, hasn't yet existed, hasn't completed its existence. But it functions as a sign without our need to check up and see whether a lecture, in fact, lasts or lasted 50 minutes. The other that's presented in the, in the sign by the sign thing is thus not the other existing in itself as a material thing. If we call the sign a label, which as such is outside and beyond the sign, it exists or is present in one way in the sign and in another way in itself. The other way which the sign presents, or the other, which the sign presents as it exists in the sign, I shall call the sign object. Given the context, simply the object. It has been called by many names. The Stoics in the ancient world called it the lekton, L-E-K-T-O-N. The Scholastics called it the annunciabile, the annunciable. Some moderns call it designatum or signatum. I call it an object to distinguish it both from the linguistic expression and from the fact which it expresses. In this case, the temporal, in the case of our example, the temporal length of a lecture. Both of these may exist or are capable of existing apart from the signifying process in a way that the sign itself does not. It is one as is the fact, but different from that fact, since it is what may send the reader to check the temporal length of a lecture. It is capable of expression in many different forms, as many as there are languages for expressing it. It is what is presented, thrown forward, hence an object where the sign thing functions as a sign. A lecture lasts 50 minutes, a spoken expression saying something about the length of a lecture. How and where the sign object exists is a fascinating object. Does it exist only in the mind, or does it exist 
somewhere outside the mind. No less difficult and interesting is the relation between the object and the extramental thing that it expresses outside the sign process. That a lecture lasts 50 minutes is something that's presented by the sign. Now whether or not in fact a lecture lasts 50 minutes is something can be checked. It has to be checked to verify. Now, all we want now is what the sign itself gives. We have found so far the sign thing and the sign object which somehow corresponds outside the sign, the fact or thing that is presented within the sign as an object. It sounds difficult or, or subtle. But you see, I'm talking about a lecture lasts 50 minutes. That signifies the length of time that a lecture takes. Now, does a lecture take that much? Does this lecture take that much? See, that's the fact outside the sign itself. Although no mention has been made of it except indirectly, the operation of a sign also involves a user. Verbal discourse has both a speaker and a hearer or a listener, a writer and a reader, in the case of a written sign. In functioning, the sign makes some kind of impression upon both the speaker and the hearer. In one respect, this impression is utterly personal, private, as diverse as the users of the sign. See, you're reacting and understanding and the rest to the expression that a lecture lasts 50 minutes is probably different uh, if you're not a lecturer <laughs> than if you are. The occurrence of the sign and its user consists of many diverse mental acts, no one of which is another. In this sense, there is always a subjective aspect to the sign, either actual or potential. But since it is subjective in the user, see, in me saying it, and you, it also out the, that's also outside the sign as such. For this reason, since it's outside the sign, it's not germane to our inquiry right now. Its investigation can be left to psychology. However, the mark of the use that does remain in a way within the sign and provides evidence for the presence of yet a third element, distinct from both the sign thing and the sign object. That there is a third element will become clear if we take another consideration of our example. We had the indicative statement, a lecture lasts about 50 minutes change it only slightly. Does a lecture last about 50 minutes? The sign thing is changed by the substitution of the word does and if you can hear it, the question mark at the end of it, see the interrogation that I've made by the sound of my voice. What about the sign object? In both cases, it's the length of the lecture, the number of minutes that a lecture takes. Sign object remains the same. Yet the two expressions are different signs in that they make different demands. The sign thing has changed from the lecture last 50 minutes to the question, does a lecture last 50 minutes? The indicative statement contains something more than the object, consists the assertion that a lecture lasts 50 minutes. And this assertion is true or false. The interrogative expression contains as something more than the object a request for information. Does a lecture last 50 minutes? The same object, in other words, is presented for different considerations. The two expressions make different demands. It may be objected that after expelling concern for the reader or the listener, we have immediately brought him back. But my point, however, 
is that we are now dealing with an element present in the sign itself, and it's because of this element that a certain effect is produced on a hearer or a reader. It is not the effect on the hearer as a subjective experience, but the element in the sign that makes the effect that is our concern. To locate the basis for the different effects insofar as they exist in the sign, we need only look at the sign, not at the hearer. The difference uh, in our example is manifested in the sign thing is the difference between an assertion and a question. In writing, the difference between an expression that ends with a period and one that ends with a question mark. But the difference lies not so much as such but in the attitude that is demanded towards it, the difference in relation established between an actual or potential user of the sign of that object. Now it's admittedly difficult to describe this third aspect without referring to the user, just as it's difficult to describe the sign object without referring to the correlative aspect outside it, the fact. Yet both elements are present in the sign and distinct from each other. There's also difficulty in getting a good name for this third element. Those that touch on this element usually tend to overemphasize the subjective user's understanding of it, not the use indicated by the sign itself, but how the user responds to the way he's asked to respond. I shall call, to avoid this reference to the user, I shall call this third element simply the sign use and depend on the context to make clear that I am talking about an element in the sign which indicates some way how it is to be used and not on what some user is doing with it. Now our analysis of the sign has thus yielded three elements, sign thing, sign object, sign use. Collecting the three, we can accordingly define a sign in general as a thing, as a thing which presents an object in some respect or capacity where object and respect are to be taken in a special way that has been indicated. Now to make this clearer, let us consider a series of three examples. A simpler one than this business of the lecture lasting 50 minutes. Take the expression of a person at a dinner table asking his companion to pass the bread. Now the expression, pass the bread, is sounding words in English that have a meaning that refer to the bread as a sign object, asking for it to be passed. So pass the bread is making a request. The expression, pass the bread, makes a request which gets the bread passed. Consider smoke in the sky. It's a visible material thing. It also, between smoke in the sky, there's a real relation of smoke to fire. And knowing that, it, smoke indicates fire. Just as clouds have a real relation to rain, so seeing rain clouds in the sky indicates that rain is in the offing. Before pursuing the analysis of the three elements of the sign that we have distinguished, sign thing, sign object, sign use, we should note that in the actual functioning of a sign, all three elements 
are always present. There's always something that presents something other in a certain respect that makes a certain demand. Now one element, however, one of these three, may well predominate over another so that we react first to it. Sometimes may occur, for example, that on receiving a letter, we first remark on some peculiarity in the handwriting. Now at that moment, what's predominant? Well, the sign thing. We are looking at the writing itself, not on what the writing is saying. The action of a crowd seeking to get out of a theater after hearing the cry of fire is primarily response to the sign use. There's fire here, it's time to get out. The crowd is concerned neither with the quality of the utterance as a sign thing, nor with the fire, but with the necessity of getting away from that fire. In such a sign as a botanical description of a plant, what we want to recognize is what that plant is. The signs function primarily to identify the plant under discussion. But although one element is predominant in these instances, the other two are also always present. The peculiar handwriting of the letter still presents some kind of object for some kind of consideration. The cry of fire has a certain character as a sign thing, presents a certain object, namely the presence of fire. The botanical description consists of ink marks on a page that are used for identifying and knowing the plant that is described. What we have in each case is a unity of all three elements in which the predominance of one at any moment never eliminates the presence of the other two. Just as our experience of the physical world is sensibly of three-dimensional things, so the sign as given in the sign process is triadic, a three-fold relation. To each of the directions corresponds one of the elements that we have distinguished. However, in addition to these three, the sign is also related to things lying outside the sign object, to the user, the hearer, the responder, to the sign use. In their ordinary use, which we know best, signs are used by persons about things. This is to say that there are only two different classes of things outside the sign itself with which it is involved, the users of it and what the signs present to the users what they stand for, what they are about, in short, things, including signs as things, if you want. We should accordingly expect to find within the sign two different elements or aspects by which the relation to these two classes of things is established. Elements which I have called respectively sign use and sign object. To claim that more than three elements are needed is to go beyond the sign and to bring in the users and the correlative in reality outside the sign. This is certainly necessary to refer to the user and to refer to the reality, certainly necessary to describe the total sign situation in which the sign accomplishes its work. Often it's crucially important for the full understanding of the sign to know who is talking, who is being addressed, as well as the thing that is being talked about. All of us make such distinctions all the time more or less consciously in ordinary conversation. But however important they become irrelevant, these considerations, once we limit our study exclusively to the sign itself, abstracted from what is external to it. 
much more difficult to show why no less than three elements are necessary. It sometimes appears in mathematics and modern logic that signs are manipulated without concern for anything except their character as sign things. No concern for their objects or the respects in which they are to be taken or used. It may even be claimed that the operations are carried on without any concern for what they mean. It can be shown, I think, that insofar as this is true, it is due primarily to the kind of signs that are employed. And this kind of sign appears predominantly in mathematics, as we'll see later. However, at this point, it may prove helpful to consider a simple example so as to see how our three elements are still present. Two of the oldest laws in logic are the law of excluded middle and the law of non-contradiction. They may be written as P or non-P, spoken as P or non-P, where P stands for anything that's true or false, or the other, non-contradiction, not both P and not P. For instance, it is either raining here or it is not raining here. Then a system is possible to prove with a few axioms, a few simple rules of operation, that these two laws are equivalent, that they have the same truth value. The actual truth is not the point, but what we want to see now is how these expressions and functioning as signs exhibit at least three distinct elements. The element of the sign thing is obvious and consists as the sounds or words on the board. Either it is raining or it is not raining. Scarcely less evident than communicating, they function to make something known. See that they're stating something about the rain, that it is happening or it is not. The something that we come to see and know is the sign object. This is not identical with the sign thing, for we may express the same equivalence, either raining or not raining, in many different languages or in the artificial language of logic and mathematics. All I'm claiming now is that the expression of the law now is functioning as a sign presents something, the sign object, other than the sounds, the sign thing, to be known and seen in some way, the sign use. Of the three elements, the sign use may seem to be extraneous and unnecessary. It might be objected that sign thing and sign object alone are sufficient and examples brought forward of a word and its dictionary meaning or a diagram and its object. Such examples are misleading. They omit the context in which the word and the diagram occur. It's only in context that they function fully as signs. The effect of the context provides the third element and is the sign use. The worth and validity of these distinctions appears most clearly in seeing what can be done with them. To see how they function in actual use is also to see that each performs a distinct function requiring a different skill for its effective use. In other words, that each provides the basis and matter for a distinct liberal art. To isolate one of the elements in this threefold unity, which is the sign, it is useful to attempt fixing two of them and allowing the third to vary. Through the varying effects, the sign then achieves, it is easier to locate the specific function of the one varying element and to see the kind of art that is necessary for its use. Start with the easiest. Let us try to fix the sign object and sign use and allow the sign thing to vary. For this purpose, perhaps the simplest example, it is that of naming one and the same thing in two different languages. Even this involves difficulties. 
we must be sure that we have the same thing presented, the same sign object, and for the same consideration, sign use. We must also suppose that the two languages are sufficiently developed and have behind them sufficient experience to describe or name the situation that we are positing. Although it may be difficult, we know that the fact does occur. Two people speaking different languages do manage to communicate so that they can get the same object for the same purpose. Now, as an example, we may consider a diagrammatic introduction to a foreign language. Suppose we have a picture of a hat. And under this expression, we write, this is a hat. We have the same sign thing see, in the, in the diagram of the hat. And we write under it, besides this is a hat, sombrero. Now, what have we got? One same sign thing. What's the sign use? Learning a foreign language. How is it accomplished? By fixing the sign thing, the diagram of the hat, and then making two other sign things that indicate the same thing. Now, the sign thing is fixed, and it's fixed by presenting a picture of a hat, and then writing under it, in the one case, es un sobrero, in the other case, that it is a hat, and we manage to understand that a piece of headgear, which we recognize by the picture, is called a sombrero in Spanish, hat in English. Now, the simplified picture diagram is, of course, a sign. It differs from the verbal expression under it in having some likeness in shape with its object, such as the word does not, the word hat, sombrero, neither has any likeness to the hat itself. This characteristic provides the basic for distinguishing among kinds of signs. See, some kinds of signs, as we'll see more in detail later, are such as present in themselves some aspect of the sign object that they represent. This distinction among kinds of signs becomes especially important when we turn to mathematics and its language. Here, however, we're concerned only with the function in learning a foreign language. Now, one function of the likeness in the diagram is to make sure that we have the same object, the hat, the headgear. To function for this purpose, we must possess the ability to use it as a sign. There is little evidence, for instance, that a dog ever makes anything out of a picture. It's most difficult to get a dog ever to watch a TV picture, you know. My cat sometimes watches it, but I think it's watching just the motions, not recognizing cats, dogs, or people. Now, since a picture of a hat does have a likeness with its objects, which the word does not, the diagram, or picture, provides one way of fixing the object. This case, we have fixed as sign object the piece of headgear, which is called hat in English and sobrero in Spanish. It should also be noted that the use of this device supposes a certain context which determines its use. We pick up the book and understand what it is trying to do to teach us Spanish. When we see the picture and the word under it, we are able to understand its purpose. Actually, this is an extremely laconic device, a kind of shorthand. To put it into words, we require something like this. You want to learn some Spanish? Well, you see this picture. It provides an object which represents a piece of headgear for both the Spanish and the English-speaking peoples. But in Spanish, it is called a sombrero. This is very laconic, 
just to explain it in as few words as we can, is much more involved. Now, of course, much more than this is required, since such an enunciation of it already supposes the whole context of what it is to learn a foreign language and how this may be done through a book devoted to this purpose, employing pictures for identifying the sign objects. However, all this is only to say that the users of the book can take this as fixed, that is, that the sign use is determined by the context and the respect or consideration for which its objects are presented for an English-speaking person to learn Spanish. With the sign object and sign use so fixed and held steady, we can consider the difference between saying, es un sombrero, and it is a hat. The main difference is obviously the presence of different sign things, now these sounding words. But much greater differences could be found by lang taking languages not related within the Indo-European language, languages as English and Spanish are. Take English and Chinese, you have very different sort of sound things going on. But the difference is sufficiently great to show what happens when the sign things vary. The two languages use different sounds and patterns, which appear in the example as different combinations of letters. They are not put together in the same way. The number of distinct sounds or letters are not the same for saying the same thing. Now, one little example like this alone is not sufficient to show even the most obvious differences between the sign things used in different languages. The sounds, of which the written language is first to sign, are things. Different languages may employ different sounds as signs. Any one language is only a selection from the range of sounds which the voice could utter. But even when the sounds employed are roughly the same as things, they are capable of entering into different relations with each other and forming different structures. Thus, besides using different properties of sound, language may combine these sounds according to different rules. One language may utilize word position as a significant element, as English does. Another may not, as in Latin. The result is that different languages exhibit different structures of sign things. Now, all of this is indeed very obvious, but it is worth laboring for the sake of making the point that in using a language, we must be able to handle and manipulate the sign things of that language according to the rules of their formation and organization. Such a function requires an art, since we are then engaged in making a construct out of a certain set of sign things. Of course, it is not the only thing that is required, since these sign things in functioning as signs also possess objects and uses with which they accomplish their work as signs. But even without the sign thing and the art of its use, we cannot have the others, at least in languages, external structures of a significant expression. Even if there is such a thing as a purely mental sign, what the ancients called the interior word or objective concept, it cannot be manifested except through an exterior construct. The making of such a construct demands an art. Art, as we've seen, is a making. And so to speak, to write a language, is to make a constructor, to employ an art. In the case of managing the sign things, which are the words of language, it demands an art. And the art of dealing with the sign things of a language is traditionally known as the liberal art of grammar. As manifested wherever there is a use of sign things, 
It is a common art and should be distinguished from the science of grammar, which scholars and linguists work. Anyone who can speak a language employs the grammar of that language, more or less well, more or less badly, but he's using the grammar. Linguists like Chomsky will say that there is an internal grammar, a universal grammar of language. And then as you learn a particular language, you have also got a, a particular art. This grammar, as a power of constructing and using sign things, is both an art and a liberal art according to the notion established in the previous lectures. For this reason, I shall retain its traditional name and call it the liberal art of grammar. The need for this art is revealed by its absence, or rather its weakness, since any use of language supposes to some extent the presence of the art. The broken and halting language of a foreigner is immediately evident. He may well know what he wants to say, but he lacks the ability to catch the sign object and sign use in the sign things of the language. He lacks the mastery of the sign things, the words and their combinations proper to the language which he's attempting to speak. In being ungrammatical, his speech reveals an unsure grasp of the art of grammar of that language. A liberal art is an art that frees. It's an art of freedom, as the Latin word liberal shows. Now what's the freedom that grammar gives us? It's the freedom not to be tied to any one individual structure. It's as though one were able to say only one group of sentences and repeat them over and over and over. But that's not the case. Even with a child just beginning to learn to speak is able to form and express sentences that have never been expressed before. And how many can a user of the language enunciate? An infinite number. The skill which the art of grammar gives to a language user is a skill that frees him to speak anything he wants to speak, to understand anything that can be said to him and understood by him. It's a great freedom, and in this sense, the liberal art of grammar is liberal as the other ones are, as I shall show later on, in producing such a liberating capacity. The arts of the mind that make it free, and hence they are liberating arts. Combining the understanding that we have already obtained of art with the additional note of the liberating factor, we can venture a definition of a liberal art. If art is having the right know-how of things makeable, the note that now has to be added is that the thing made is one that transcends space and time. Thus a liberal art can be defined as having the right know-how of making things that transcend space and time. And this is true of the art of using language, which is the liberal art of grammar. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.